Well, we are in our last week of our series in Advent while we wait. Uh, So far in this series, we've looked at uh, the passage of Scripture from Isaiah chapter 11, where we saw the promise of the prophet saying that uh, a vine, a branch, will shoot out of the stump of Jesse, and with that will come a new king. And along with that new king, there comes a new kingdom. And in this uh, kingdom, we're not going to be judged by our appearances. We are going to have uh, need or or love and grace is going to be shown to the poor and the needy. Uh, The new kingdom, in this new kingdom, power will be demonstrated with words, not weapons and signs of force. It's a kingdom characterized by faithfulness and righteousness. A kingdom that's not built on violence, but instead... It's built on peace. We also looked at how, how the angels shared the message, the, the message uh, that they shared to the shepherds and how that message was shared with ordinary people in ordinary ways. And, and then that message, again, was shared with, with everyone that they came in contact with. Last week, we looked at joy. Uh, we, we looked at how oftentimes we don't have joy because of some different things that happen in our life, because of unrealistic expectations or unrealized expectations. Uh, we talked about unresolved conflict and how unconfessed sin in our lives uh, can take away our joy. We're also challenged to see God not as some tyrant who's looking to, to you know, strike us down, but instead to view God as joyful, to see Him that we can worship Him in everything we say and do, in every aspect of our, of our lives, that we are called to love others and we're called to love God. And so today, in our last week of Advent, while we wait, we want to focus on love. But I want to try to take a look at this concept of love from a slightly different angle. And to do that, I want to start by asking you this question. When you think about the, the birth narrative of Jesus, when you think about the Christmas story, not the movie A Christmas Story, but the Christmas story that we're focused on, and you think about the characters in that story, who is it in there that you would most like to meet? Who is it that you would like to have a conversation with? Think about that for just a minute. Of all the people that are involved in that, who would you want to talk to? For me, as I thought about that and as I contemplated that, I found it hard to narrow it down to just one person, right? Because there's, there's so many interesting and amazing people in this story. For instance, I don't know how your Christmas season is going, but maybe your Christmas season is just a little hectic and you've got a little pent-up aggression, and you're trying to, you know, use your filter and you're trying to keep things under control. But maybe you're just kind of struggling with that a little bit. And so what you really need is to just encounter King Herod. So you can just give him a piece of your mind, right? And just give him a, a good swift kick in the rear because that's probably what he needs. So maybe you want to go talk to King Herod. There's the Magi, right? The wise men who come from the east. Lots of questions I'd have for them. Who were they? How exactly did they uh, come to know that this was going to happen? Where exactly did they come from? How did, how did this all come together? What did they know about the star? What did they know about Jesus being born? How long did their journey take? And maybe most importantly, so we can get our nativity scene right, how many of you were there, right? We just need, because guys, we double up on gifts all the time because we're not that creative. So maybe there was more than, than three. Um, the, the innkeeper, Maybe you just kind of want to go up to the innkeeper and go, really, man, you sent a pregnant woman to a stable. Come on, right? I wonder if he ever found out who he'd sent to be born in his stable. There's the shepherds. What was it like to see the angels? I mean, really, what was it really like to be out there? Uh, How long did it take you once the the angels left to kind of 
get over your shock and awe and then decide to go into town. And then once you got into into town, was it quick that you found baby Jesus or did it take you a while? Did you were like going to every stable and you're, hey, is there a baby here? And then you look and figure out which one it was. Did you, did you have to ask or did you just, you just know? Maybe you would want to ask the shepherds, what happened to your sheep? While you were gone, right? Your job is to watch the sheep, so, so were they okay when you got back? Other people in this story that we don't really think about in the, the birth story, but they're real close there. There's people like, uh, like Anna, the, the prophetess, who saw Jesus at the temple, and she was telling people about the one who would redeem his people. There's Simeon, who held Jesus in the temple, who praised God and then blessed Mary and Joseph. And what about the people in town? The people who the shepherds were going door to door telling people, hey, there's this Savior, the Messiah, Jesus has been born. What did they think? These shepherds knocking on their doors and, and causing a ruckus in, in the middle of the night. What, what did they think? And then, of course, there's the couple of the main players, right? There's Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now, who wouldn't want to have a sit-down conversation with Mary, the mother of Jesus? How cool would that be? Or maybe for you. Just the awesomeness, awe thought of being able to hold Jesus as a baby. And maybe that's who you're thinking about and just wanting to be there for that moment. And, and there's, there's lots of things, but I think there's someone else. There's someone else in the story that we don't think about often. We, we really uh, don't think about this person until we're putting together the, the Christmas play or, or putting together a nativity scene. We often see uh, this person as an extra to the story. Matthew tells us about him. His name is, anyone? Joseph, right. Joseph, uh, the husband of Mary, the, the earthly father of Jesus, if you will. And, and while meeting all those other people would be pretty amazing, think for, with me for just a minute what it would be like to have a conversation with Joseph. The truth is we don't know much about Joseph. Not much is said about him in the scriptures. We don't talk much about him at this church or frankly any church. Uh, we sing Christmas carols, but we never mention Joseph, do we? Running through that Rolodex in your brain real quick. Yeah, come on. Keep going. We mention Mary. We mention the wise men. We mention the shepherds. There's an entire song about a little drummer boy, and he's not even in the, you know, the Christmas story. Even the cattle are lowing get more airtime than Joseph, right? Now, if you're going to do your Google research, some of you may be doing that right now. Um, the song we sang this morning, Angels We Have Heard on High. In verse 4, there's this line. See him in a manger laid, whom the choirs of angels praise. Mary, Joseph, lend your aid while our hearts in love we raise. But you know why we never sing that verse? Because it's verse number 4. And after three rounds of glory, we're just kind of tired at that point, right? So we just punt the fourth verse and go right on. So there's that. Most of the time when it comes to Joseph, he just, he gets nothing. So what do we know about Joseph? Well, we know that his father was Jacob. We know that his hometown was Bethlehem in Judea, but he lived in Nazareth, Nazareth of Galilee. Nazareth was about 85, 90, 95, 100, somewhere in that ballpark miles away uh, from Bethlehem. So that made the journey to be registered for the census with a pregnant lady a very challenging endeavor in and of itself. Joseph was from the royal line of David. Matthew and his genealogy makes that very clear. We know that Joseph was a carpenter by trade. We also know that he was poor. When Mary and Joseph presented Jesus in the temple, 
they brought turtle doves as a sacrifice. And that was only permissible if the family could not afford a lamb. So they were poor. He was devoted to God. He was committed to keeping and obeying the law. He was, by all accounts and everything we know, he was a good Jew for his time. And and Matthew gives us some information about Joseph in his gospel. In, In chapter 1, verse 18, it says this. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His, mar- his mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Now, I just want to take a step back from the story and, and, and try to, to help us understand this in our context and our culture today. This idea of being pledged to be married or betrothed, as some other versions may have that in their text, refers to a, a rather ancient Jewish custom. In our society... We have such a romantic view of love, don't we? We fall in love, we invest in getting you know, in love, we, we spend time, effort, and, and money and all this thing uh, getting into love. And, and because of that being our mindset, this idea of being pledged to be married or betrothed is, is really hard for us to understand. In those days, most marriages were arranged by the parents. Now, some of you parents go, that's not a bad idea, Right? And some of your kids are going like, no, no way, right? I want my parents to have no say in this. But the idea was that the parents would make the arrangements and they didn't need the approval or the input of their children. They just did it. The two sets of parents would meet. They would draw up the terms of the marriage contract. They would agree upon them. They would sign it. And the man and the woman were legally pledged to be married to each other at that point. And the length of time they were pledged to be married varied, but most of the time it was right around a year. And at the end of this year waiting period, they were formally married in a public wedding ceremony. Now, if we were to kind of try to figure that out in our context, in our society, if you were to remove uh, the, from the equation uh, the parents from that situation, then we would call that being engaged, Right? A lot of couples get engaged and they're, you know, engaged to be married for a year or longer. But there really are some major differences between then and now. This pledge to be married was as sacred as the marriage itself at the time. Um, The couple was called husband and wife from the time they were pledged to be married. And yet they did not live together. This was not allowed until after the public wedding ceremony took place. This whole idea of this one-year waiting period was meant to be a time where they could demonstrate their faithfulness and their commitment one to the other. The two people that were engaged to be married or pledged to be married, they would never have been alone together. When they spent time together, there were other people, and not just anyone, but it was family. It was the parents. It was part of, of, of the community. They didn't hang out together, go to the mall or watch TV or go to the movies They just didn't do any of that. The families ate together. They worked together. They went to synagogue together. They would interact together. Not just the two that were pledged to be married, but the families would come together and do all of the normal routines of life together. In fact, if the man were to die during that year that they were pledged to be married, the woman would still be considered a widow, even though the wedding ceremony had never taken place. The only way to break the betrothal, that pledge to be married, was through a legal divorce. It kind of takes the idea that we have of going steady or being engaged to a whole new level, doesn't it? And in this situation that Joseph and Mary are in, and they're pledged to be married, Mary turns up pregnant. And Joseph knows one thing for sure. 
he's not the father. What must Joseph have been thinking? If you try to put yourself in his shoes, what do you think he was experiencing at that time? Anger? Confusion? Hurt? Frustration? Shame? Embarrassment? Rage? Disappointment? You list the emotions. He probably experienced them. What did Joseph say to Mary? Have you ever wondered? What did Mary say to Joseph, right? Did she tell him about Gabriel? Did she launch into the, hey, Joseph, you're not going to believe this. But an angel of the Lord came to me, and then he was like, no, 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 just stop it, right? What, what did he do? If he didn't believe her, could you blame him? I mean, could you really blame him for having doubts? Did he give her the silent treatment? Did he just avoid her? Did he say to her, I can't believe you did this to me. I can't believe you did this to us, to our families. You were pledged to me. We were, we were to be married. I've kept myself for you. I'm already working on our house, a, a place for us, a place for our kids. We don't know what Joseph said. We're kind of left to fill in the blanks. And so you can kind of take some artistic license and kind of say, I don't know. But if you ask me, I think Joseph's dreams were shattered. I think his world was spinning out of control and he didn't know what to do. Joseph was an observant Jew. I believe he was a good guy. He desired to be obedient to God and live according to the law. And under the law, he had the right to divorce Mary for unfaithfulness. But, but I think in this is where Joseph's character really starts to shine through and we really see what type of a person he is. And the text doesn't say this, but, so I'm reading into the text, all right? But, but I believe it was because of either his love for God or his love for Mary or a combination of both that even though he had the right to divorce her and to do whatever he wanted to her because of his perceived unfaithfulness from her to him, his love covered her shame. Look at what Joseph decided to do. At verse, in verse 19 it says, Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. You see, a Jewish man at that time could go get a divorce one of two ways. He could go to the judge at the city gate and he could publicly announce what he wanted to do. He could lay out his case and the whole town and anyone could come and it would be a very public spectacle and he would be granted a a divorce. Or you could go kind of the exact opposite route and you could find two witnesses, present your case, and be granted a divorce. Now the text doesn't tell us when Joseph made his decision. Was it on the spot? Was it quick? Or did it take a long time? I tend to think that he agonized over this decision. I think he hesitated. I think he waited. I think he contemplated what to do. Do I go through with the wedding ceremony anyway, which would have been a huge disgrace on him and his family? What will my parents think? What will our families think? What will the people in town think? Do I divorce her? If so, what option do I choose? What do I do? I think think his world was just really in turmoil. The text tells us what he decided to do. He chose the more discreet option to divorce her quietly, thus protecting not only himself and his family, but Mary and her family. And I think late at night when he stared up into the darkness, He finally drifted off to sleep, and then it happened. He had a dream, and in this dream, the angel came to him, and God spoke to him through the angel, 
And the text says, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, can you imagine being Joseph in that moment? I'd love to ask him, did he wake up immediately or was it one of those, oh, dreams, right? Joseph heard from God, and now he had the truth. All of his fear and all of his doubt and all of his suspicion, and I also think all of his hurt was removed. God met him at the point where he needed to be met, exactly at the right moment he needed to be met, and he told Joseph what he needed to hear. Don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. But there was more to the angel's message. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The the angel explains to Joseph exactly what he needed to know, but nothing more. The baby is from the Holy Spirit, thus not from man. Therefore, she has not been unfaithful to you. We're not told precisely how this could happen. Neither was Joseph. And some 2,000 years later, we basically know what Joseph knew at the time, right? In fact, if you read through the Gospels, you'll find that the Gospel writers are more focused on Jesus being the Son of God than anything else. How Jesus was the fulfillment of the prophecies. His emphasis, their emphasis was not on the kingdom here on earth, but the kingdom of heaven. God was interested and focused on us receiving the message that Jesus is God's Son, is His Son. The angel told Joseph to name the baby Jesus, and Jesus means Savior. It means He will save the people from their sins. An amazing message that, while short, it was sufficient for Joseph. Because look at what Joseph did in verse 24. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. I want you to see what I think is a demonstration of love by Joseph in this entire situation and everything he did. He demonstrated his love to God by desiring to uphold the law. He had been what he had perceived to be wronged. His pledge to be wife had been unfaithful, and he wanted to honor God in his commitment. And so he had in mind to uphold the law. Then he demonstrated his love for Mary by taking Mary home to be his wife. He demonstrated his love by having no union with her, thus protecting the, the miracle of the virgin birth. He demonstrated his love by naming the baby. And that's a big thing that we really don't have time to talk about this morning. But he named the baby. He named the baby Jesus. And he took him into his home as a legal son. And here's the thing about love. True, genuine love is always going to cost you something. It's always going to cost you something. For Joseph, his demonstration of love cost him his reputation It cost him ridicule and shame. It cost him the opportunity to start out life as he had planned and as as he had dreamed. It cost him the place in his town and in his family and in his, his village. It cost him a place of position. It also cost him his identity in the life of the firstborn in Jesus. You see, Jesus was often referred to as Mary's son, right? That's Mary's son, That's how people knew him. Now, in our society, that's really not that big a deal. Josh is Michelle's son. Cale is Michelle's son. Not not that big a deal. But in this society, that was a huge, steep price to pay for the son to be known as 
the mother's son and not the father's son. And yet, in all Joseph did, he demonstrated love. And if you really stop and think about it, if you try to look at it from a different angle, you see that it really is a beautiful story. Especially when you consider how much Joseph could have chosen to play a different role in the story. He could have tried to write his own script, but instead he decided that he was content with making what we might call a cameo appearance, right? His role was significant, but it definitely was not the focus of the story. And I wonder, how do we respond? Or maybe more directly, how do you respond when you're not the focus What do you do when it seems like God is using other people? When it seems like God is is doing great things in other people's lives, when he's answering their prayers and he's creating meaningful relationships in their lives, but not in yours? How do you respond when you're playing what appears to be a supportive role to someone else's story and you're not the main character? I want to encourage you because in the scriptures we find Joseph, showing us that everyone, everyone, even those who are viewed as playing a minor role, everyone is important. Everyone is needed for the story to be complete. It was true for Joseph, and it's true for you, and it's true for me as well. Think about what the Christmas story would be like if we didn't have Joseph. It'd be a different story, wouldn't it? Things would not be the same, and yet we really don't think about Joseph. The focus is on Jesus. You see, from Joseph, I I think there are some things we can learn from his example. Joseph was strong when he could have been weak. He was tender when he could have been harsh. He was thoughtful when he could have been impulsive. He was trusting when he could have had doubts. He was obedient when he could have done what he desired to do. He was loving when he could have chosen to hate. And I wonder, as believers, which of those characteristics and qualities would describe us? Are we strong? When it comes to our faith, do we respond with compassion to others or do we respond with judgment? Are we thoughtful, taking our time to make important decisions? Or are we impulsive, making decisions that we will later regret? Do we trust that God's word is true even in spite of our doubts? Are we obedient even when we think we can find a better way? Are we loving other people? Or do we expect them to live up to some standard of perfection that we have claimed in our own life or in our own mind? The text says they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. The truth of the matter is this. We need a Savior because we are all sinners. But the only way that God could save us was to leave heaven and come down to earth and live among us. Thus, Jesus Emmanuel, God with us. And I want to encourage you to let that be the focus of this season. And not just this season of Christmas, but for that to be the focus and your reality each and every day of your life. You see, in this ultimate demonstration of love, Jesus left heaven to be here on earth with us, to live among us and to give his life. And that's why every week we demonstrate his sacrifice through communion. We take time to pass the bread and to pass the cup. We take time to allow you to reflect on what Jesus has done for us. We realize that Jesus, as he came to earth, it cost him something. And for him, it cost him his life. And he gave it for us on the cross so that we could have 
hope, so that we could have peace, so that we could have joy, and so we could experience His love in a very real, practical way each and every day of our life. He paid the price for us. He paid the price on the cross. It's it's why we celebrate communion. It's why we pause. It's why we reflect. It's why we celebrate and remember Advent. While we wait, we're in the already but not yet. We, we view the manger in the shadow of the cross and we see what Jesus has done for us. And so this morning, we want to invite you to celebrate, to remember, to know that God loves you and that he paid the price for you and to celebrate that through communion.